Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com. Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab podcast, a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. Each week, we want to bring you an insightful interview on a specific topic in board game design to help you design and create games people love. And now, here's your host, Gabe Barrett. What's up, my friends? Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, talking about deck building, talking about taking some cards from over here, cards from over there, putting them all together, making an awesome deck, trying to win the game. And we're talking to Darwin Castle from White Wizard Games. Darwin, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good to be here. Yeah, man, I'm excited to talk to you. You're a guy that's been making some some of the best deck building games on the market. And so I'm, I'm pumped to kind of get your thoughts, your ideas on how to design one of these games, how to make it interesting, how to make it different. But before we get into the topic at hand, kind of tell me who you are. Tell me your background, how you got into game design, that kind of thing. Sure. Um, so for the longest time, I was more of a game player than a game designer. Um, the thing that really, really got me into gaming was Magic the Gathering. I was pretty obsessed with that. And uh, when there was a pro tour, I joined the Magic Pro Tour and uh, so I, I guess I made a name for myself when I got into the Pro Tour Hall of Fame in the first year. Uh, so that way, when I did get into game design, like I had a, at least at some mark, some marketability, some sort of name brand, if you will, because a lot of pe- gamers knew me as, oh, he's that Hall of Fame Magic player. But I think also the, the skill set transferred a little bit. Like, I think if you're really good at designing decks for a game like Magic, uh, that sort of skill set can be relevant for game design too. Oh, yeah, for sure. Especially the types of games that you've been making. Now, how in the world does one become a Hall of Fame Magic player, especially in their first year? Like, how did you do that? Well, so um, basically what I meant by the first year was the first year of the Hall of Fame. Like in order to get to the Hall of Fame, you had to be playing in the Pro Tour for at least 10 years. Oh, gotcha. Uh, Okay, that makes a little more sense. Yeah, so at some point they invented a Hall of Fame for the Pro Tour. And, you know, so presumably during the first year they had a large pool of people to choose from and they were only going to let five people in. So, you know perhaps it was significant that I was one of the first five people to get in. But then, yeah, every year since then, they've added between two and five more people. Um, and, you know, now there's a decent number of people do it. But, yeah, you had to be playing Magic competitively for a really long time and be very successful and uh, also not be a cheater or anything like that. But I managed to check all the boxes, and, and here I am. And then while I was still playing Magic competitively, Um, my magic team got contacted by Upper Deck Entertainment, who was working on a trading card game uh, with the Marvel and the DC license called Versus. And they were really struggling with the game engine. And uh, it occurred to them that they happened to know us and it occurred to them that we might be able to help. Like, you know, they're trying to think outside the box and, you know, get some people to come in and help. And so we flew to... California and uh, we were able to help and that's when I realized that hey like you know this is kind of cool like I could instead of playing in tournaments and hoping to win money someone could actually pay me to play games <laughs> you know I could work on games and and so uh, you know the first big game design development job I had was working doing contract work for Upper Deck Entertainment on Versus um, and that was mostly development, but that got me interested in design. 
And, you know, I worked for one small company after another uh, doing design development. And uh, it's funny because I designed Star Realms as a game that I could take to job interviews and say, look how good I am at designing games. But uh, it ha- happened that one of my former small business em- employers, who I was good friends with, Rob Doherty, uh, was like, hey, this is a really good game. Maybe we should make our own company and publish it. And since he had experience running game companies and we were best friends, I was like, you know, heck yeah. And, you know, that sort of brought us more or less to where we are now. But obviously Star Realms is doing quite well. Yeah, I'd say it's uh, it's done fairly well. <laughs> I think, you've, you've, you know, you made a dollar here or there. All right, so your first real game design was with the Versus system. But what, what year was that? Oh, gosh. Um, Wow, it's been it's been a while. Um, I want to say that was uh, let's say I want to say about ten years ago uh, that I was doing that. I, I you know I'm sure we could Google when uh, the Versus system was first published, and you know that's probably about the time that I joined their team. Gotcha. But, you know, in in that ballpark, uh, maybe even maybe probably a little bit longer actually. Uh, I'm trying to think because I started playing Magic in the mid '90s, and I was so yeah probably. Yeah, probably like more like fifteen years ago. So yeah, time flies when you're you're having fun. Like, uh, yeah. there there are worse jobs than being a game designer. I'll tell you. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so that was like maybe the mid two thousands. But White Wizard, which is the game company you run now, that was that you you guys started that in twenty thirteen. Is that right? Yeah. So I had designed other games that were published by smaller companies before Star Realms came around. Uh, so like I think when we did the Kickstarter for Star Realms. A lot of people may not have even known that I designed other games. Like Rob uh, was known in part because he did design work on Ascension, which I was, uh, you know, did some development work on. But uh, I, I had, you know, most of the games I designed up to that point were, weren't super well known. Uh, but basically, the fact that Rob and I were known as Hall of Fame Magic players, and you know, our association with Ascension uh, definitely helped give people the idea that they should give us a chance and, you know, maybe we knew what we were doing. And fortunately we were able to walk the walk. Yeah, for sure. All right. So tell me some of the other uh, major games you've worked on. Okay. So, um, you know, obviously I, I was developer for versus I was a developer for Ascension. Um, <clears throat> I designed Avalanche Riders for Magic the Gathering, a single card, uh, but I was a developer for a game called uh, Epic Trading Card Game. Uh, I was a designer and developer on Battleground Fantasy Warfare. Um, I was the lead designer in a game called the Battle for Hill 218, uh, which for a while had an app as well. Um, and I designed a game called Space Station Assault, which was my first published game, but probably the one that got the least attention. Yeah. Okay, cool. And so a lot of these are deck building style games, right? Yeah. So it depends on how you define deck building, but obviously Ascension is a deck building game. And, you know, obviously with my current company, I designed both Star Realms and Hero Realms, which are both definitely uh, deck building games. Yeah, well, actually, that's that's a great point. Let's get a good working definition of deck building before we kind of move into the topic. So it typically means a game where as you're playing the game, you're taking actions to improve the deck. You see, so you start with a simple deck, and as you're playing the game, you take actions 
to improve your deck as you're playing the deck you're playing with is constantly getting better and you're building it as you play. Uh, some people think of games like Magic as deck building games because you build a deck and then play with it. But typically when people say deck building games, they mean a game where your deck's evolving and getting better as you're playing. Yeah, and I think that's an important distinction. Like with Magic, you've already built the deck. It's a deck built game and then you're just playing with it. Yeah, exactly. All right, cool. And so like, these games have just exploded in popularity. I mean, so many different versions, so, so many different ways to do it. I think Dominion really kind of put the, the this genre on the map with making it you know more mainstream. But why is that such the appeal? Like, why are people so drawn to these games? Well, so uh, it's it basically it's great because on the one hand, I think it appeals to people who appreciate trading card style games like Magic. It, it scratches that itch but without the commitment like you don't have to spend thousands of dollars like you're you're buying a game in a box so the whole game is in that box but at the same time it's accessible to people who wouldn't ever be interested in trading card games people who wouldn't want to buy whole collections of cards or wouldn't necessarily want the complexity of a trading card game. So it has a broad, broader appeal than a trading card game. Like it, it appeals to people who are into really deep strategy games, yet it also appeals to people who want a game that's a little simpler to learn, doesn't take as long to play. They can play in one session and, and walk away and do, do the next thing and you go play the next board game or whatever type thing. Yeah, I think that's important to, to note. A lot of people who love Magic, I'm in, I'm in this boat. I used to love Magic. I played so much when I was in late high school and college, but I got so tired of the meta. I got so tired of all the other stuff that kind of goes along with the lifestyle. And so I feel like there's a lot of people like that that love this style of game, but don't want to deal with all the other stuff that goes along with it. Would you say that's a fair assessment? Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, trading card games like Magic are more of a lifestyle game, and, and deck building games are more of a game. <laughs> yeah, it's a great point. Now, what drew you in particular to these kinds of games? Even if it, you know, like what drew you to play Magic at the beginning, and then what kind of drew you more and more right. down this road of of designing these style games? So, I've always liked strategy games. Um, for a while in college, I was obsessed with chess. You know, before college, I was obsessed with games like Stratego, Risk, Axis and Allies, Titan. Um, but like Magic, really took that to the next level. Like. Here was uh, a game with more strategy that was like more portable, had more things you could do with it and could evolve in more ways. There was more people playing it. It was easier to find opponents. You could find tournaments. Like uh, it stretched so many itches. And I was getting in close to the ground floor. Like obviously if you learn to play chess now, it'd be hard to be much farther from the ground floor. Um, but, uh, so it, it, magic was really a, a perfect storm for my interests and my skill sets. Um, but the nice thing about deck building games was, again, I could scratch that itch while not having to constantly buy hundreds of dollars worth of cards. Like I could sort of not have a magic collection anymore and not be constantly traveling to, uh, you know, find tournaments or whatever. And just, oh, me and a buddy or two could get together and just break out like Dominion or break out Ascension and just play. And then even better yet, when like uh, they came on an app form, like Ascension as an app was a fantastic app. Um, and I, you know, I've, I had played magic online, but magic wasn't really designed with digital play in mind. And 
Uh, I, I hated the chess clock, and it, it didn't translate well for me as a digital game. I much prefer Magic as a physical game, yeah. but if anything, I preferred Ascension as a digital game. Like it, having the asynchronous turns really translates well to like a mobile app, which is really how I like to play digital games. I like to play them mobile, and I like to play them asynchronously. And so here, I was able to scratch the itch of that a game like Magic or Versus scratched. Yet I was able to do it on my convenience on a digital app or just, you know, having a friend or two over for, you know, a quick game night or something without this sort of just the level of commitment that these other games required from me. And that also helps on a design perspective as well. Like, you know, you you design a more closed system. Like you don't have to design as many cards and you don't have to constantly design these huge expansions and figure out how every single card interacts with every single card. It's it's just a whole different approach and it's a lot more elegant. Yeah, I think that's something to keep in mind. Like with Magic, you kind of need a giant team to help you create like a new expansion because you have to test so many different things. With a deck building game, it's a closed system, you know, and and you don't have to come up with as many cards, as many mechanics, all these different things. And so it's easier for, I feel like, for somebody to create a deck builder as opposed to a a brand new trading card game or CCG. And so let's let's even jump into kind of like your your own experience with some of the games you've made. Let's start with Star Realms, maybe your most uh, popular game or most well-known. Tell me about like how that idea started. You said it was just like a resume game, like just to show people you could make games, but like how in the world did that get going? Uh, I had uh, worked on uh, a trading card game called uh, Epic Trading Card Game. And one of the lessons that Rob and I learned from that game uh, was that for the game to be a game like that to be successful, you really needed a certain uh, group, a certain number of people. Like basically without hitting a certain number of people playing, it was hard for it to be successful because like you could build your own deck, but if you walked in the local game store and there wasn't someone there who had a deck of your game for you to play against, like you, you got nothing. Like basically you didn't need the, the same, um, I, I forget the term, but the same threshold of, of people playing the game. Whereas, uh, a deck building game was more like a board game. You could carry the whole game in with you and convince them to play with you. And you've got the full experience. You don't, you don't need, a, a group of opponents already playing the game. Um, and so we felt that it's easier to make a board game or a deck building game or something like that successful than it is to make a trading card game successful because you, you, you don't, there isn't such a high floor to the number of players you have to have for the game to work and be sustainable. Like basically if, you know, a bunch of people are playing magic great, but then everyone stopped playing, then, you know, no one will play. Whereas here, if, you know, people in my area weren't playing my board game, well, I have a copy of the board game. I can just get someone to play and deck building games kind of work that way. So with star realms, um, I, at the time was between game companies and I want to get a job, uh, preferably as a designer, although, you know, developer, whatever, I, I wanted to work for a game company. I knew I had a bunch of game companies that wanted me to stop by and talk to them on the West Coast. So I knew I was going to be taking a trip where I was going to drive from Seattle, you know, visit Wizards of the Coast. Then I was going to go to California and visit three or four companies there um, and talk to them. And I wanted to have something to show them so I could tangibly say, hey, look, this is an example of the kind of thing I can do for you. And, you know, a lot of the games I had designed before that were on a smaller scale. They were like 
little two-player card games that you could play in 15 minutes that didn't really lend themselves to expansions and had small sets of cards. And I, w- I want to show something on a little bit grander scale, but not necessarily you know another TCG because those things were done to death at that point. And I had recently become very interested in deck-building games, and I was obsessed with Dominion. I was obsessed with Ascension, but I felt like they were flawed. Like I, I felt that there was another dimension of deck building games that could be explored and needed to be explored. Uh, I guess the biggest problem I had with deck building games, despite my obsession with them, was they weren't interactive enough. It felt too much like competing games of solitaire, which, you know, I like doing my own thing while you're doing your own thing kind of thing. But couldn't it be better if we also interacted with each other? Like the interactions seem limited to, well, I hope that my opponent doesn't buy all the things I want to buy, right? Uh, doesn't acquire the cards I want to acquire. Um, and that seemed to be pretty much the only real point of interaction in the deck building games I was playing. And I, I thought, you know, well, one, I'd like to make them more interactive. Um, and two, like, I felt a lot of deck building games weren't doing enough uh, thematically, you know, with their visuals and with their storytelling. And I felt like we could sort of flesh that out and do better. Um, Among the things like I happen to really like spaceship combat and that wasn't being done with deck building games. Um, And I think my love of magic helped a little bit here because magic's a pvp game and so it was kind of natural for me to try to add the pvp combat element to a deck building game now that i was obsessed with deck building games um and i think by allowing you not only allowing you to attack your opponent but that being the path to victory in star realms added a massive amount of interactivity that previous deck building games didn't have And so I thought I would bring that with me when I went to all these game companies and show them, look, you know, I've taken this existing genre and I've done this major cool innovation that upgrades the experience in a really meaningful way and look at this kind of thing I can bring to the table. Yeah, for sure. And like you said, you you brought a lot of the PVP stuff, the player versus player interaction into this space that it was, it wasn't really happening. So like, you know, a lot of people that love magic, you know, would probably play Dominion and go, yeah, that's that's cool, that's fun, but it's it's not you know it's not scratching the same itch. Whereas Star Realms yep. or Hero Realms, it's like, oh yeah, this really scratches the same itch. Oh, and it's all in one box. And I don't have to buy all these booster packs and keep up with all the expansions coming out. Yes, that makes a lot more sense. So I can see why this game really exploded in popularity. And I think it it has a broader appeal. Like Magic doesn't have to have a super broad appeal. I mean, it helps if they do, but they don't have to because each customer spends so much money. <laughs> But like they can, you know, get away with that. But like with uh, Star Realms, I feel there's a broader demographic of people who appreciate it, which is good because we don't charge very much money. Like, you know, we were the base that we were selling for $15 for all you need for two players. And the amount there had never been a game that had the amount of gameplay and replayability per dollar as Star Realms was offering. Um, and yet basically... I play Star Realms with a lot of people who, if you play a game like Magic with them, they, their eyes glaze over and they shut off and they're just not interested. But this is a game that was more accessible, was easier to learn and just you know more fun and they could get into it quicker and experience it quicker. And like it was just like, you know, for example, my girlfriend, like I've played game, tried to play games like Magic with her and complete fail, but she loves Star Realms, you know. 
Um, and I, I know a lot of people who've had that sort of experience. Yeah. Now, would you say one of the differences when designing a deck building game versus a CCG is that you need it to be more simple? Like with Magic, I mean, the, the mechanism, the number of mechanisms in that game is astronomical. The way cards work and the you know the new every new expansion has a w- new way for cards to work. So with deck builders, do you need to just start off with a, a simpler foundation of things and, and be careful about getting too complex? Right. Well, I think that that's just good game design. Period. Like I think. You know, even if you're doing a TCG, like when you, the first set, you know, when you're first trying out, you should keep it really simple. Among things, it just, one, it makes it more accessible to people. Two, it leaves more design space. So sure, magic's been around for decades. So yeah, they've had to come up with new, crazy, and complex ideas to have something new and different when they release expansions, you know, and may, maybe if Star Realms is around as long, you know, we'll run into trouble like that too, as we use up more and more design space, but so far so good. But I, I, yeah, I think it's a lot of people try to be too complex when they first launch a game um, that even almost happened with Star Realms. Like I, my early versions were much more complex, much more mathy, and fortunately, I had smart people uh, advising me that I should do something about that, and and I I did, you know. Um, but I also had people once we refined it. I had people say, "Wait, isn't this game too simple? Shouldn't it be more complicated?" And fortunately, I didn't listen to those people. Um, fortunately, I, I chose the right people to listen to, um, and it, it, I, I just think it's really. We have something here at White Wizard Games, uh, imaginary stick we call the simple stick. And every time we design a new game, we or you know new expansion of a game or whatever, we be we make sure to hit that game over and over with the simple stick, because sure for you know high level gamers like ourselves who've been working on these games for years, like it may not seem too complex, but we're not who we're making the game for. All right. And yeah, like basically a game doesn't need to be really complex to have to be fun and have a lot of strategy and to have a lot of replay value. And you can always add complexity more. If, if people like the game, you can make expansions and, you know, try some crazy stuff then, you know? Yeah, for sure. I think that's one thing. You make a great point. A lot of people, they, they just don't think about you can always make a game more complicated with expansions, you know, with other releases, with other things. You can't make a game simpler, right? The base right. game is as simple as it gets, right? And so that's one thing to keep in mind. It's easier to build on top of as opposed to try to tear down. Oh, exactly. Right? exactly. Yeah. All right. Let's talk some more differences about Star Realms, the original, and then what eventually, you know, hit retail however, however long later. Like, what were some of the things you cut out? Uh, well, so um, I think when designing a Star Realms card, uh, it's important to try and keep the cards relevant for as much of the game as possible. So we want cards that are useful in the early game, but they're also useful in the mid game and they're also useful in the late game. And the, the way I got around that with the early build, uh, I, I took the easy way out and almost every single card you could, you had a choice. You could either, let's say, get you know a certain amount of trade or you could get a certain amount of combat. You had a choice to make, but then, if you have a whole handful of cards like that, you're, there's so much math as you try and decide how much of them to use for trade and how much of them to use for combat and how that interacts. And you just really get bogged down with all these decision points. And so I had to find ways to keep cards relevant without making such an overwhelming number of decision points. And one of the ways I accomplished that was with ally abilities. 
um, which I think are one of the things that make Star Realm special. There's a few things, and I think this is one of them. Um, basically, in the early game, you just have the card's basic ability. So we need to make sure that the basic ability is useful in the early game. But if the, that ability isn't super useful in the late game, it's still okay if you had an ally ability that was useful in the late game because maybe you could ignore the ally ability in the early game because you didn't have cards to ally up with it or whatever. But usually by the late game, you can have a good idea if I acquire this card, how likely you are to be able to trigger the ally ability. And so we can often make good early game cards with good late game allies. And, you know, you could do the opposite, but that doesn't usually work as well because it's hard to trigger ally, ally abilities early. Um, but that, that also same thing with scrap abilities. Like, okay, this card's not useful anymore because we're in the late game, but it's got a scrap for combat or whatever. So not only do I have something useful to do in the late game, but I get it out of my deck so I won't draw it again. Yeah, I'd say Star Realms and then consequently Hero Realms do an incredible job of solving the issue of monotony. Like so many games I've played, especially prototypes, I feel like I'm doing the exact same thing on turn one through three as I am turn 25 through 28. It's like, well, like there's no arc. Like if I'm just doing the same thing over and over again, it's like it gets boring. But with Star Realms and Hero Realms, it's like I feel like there's a beginning, there's a middle, and there's an end, and I can kind of feel the arc as I'm playing. And I can also feel that tension as my you know life meter goes down, as my opponents goes down, and I'm feeling like the cards are, are doing different things. And so I feel like you really solve that in a really cool way uh, with, with those ally abilities and doing you know, different things to make the, the the middle and the end game different from the very very beginning. Now, what would you say, are there any other things that you thought about that just didn't work in, in trying to solve this issue? No, I, I think I did a relatively good job of getting it right quickly. It just, you know, was a question, again, of hitting it with a simple stick. Yeah. Um, I, I think that the key things about ally abilities are, uh, one, how it affects your acquisition decisions. So basically, once I've got a couple cards of a specific faction in my deck, then which have ally abilities, I might want to buy more cards of that faction to trigger those ally abilities, even if they're not as good as some of the other cards I could be buying, not counting ally abilities. But at the same juncture, I have to think about, well, what faction has my opponent gotten? Maybe I should be denying him cards that will trigger his ally abilities. So not only does it affect your buying decisions, but then as the game goes on, the cards themselves evolve because the more likely they are to trigger their ally abilities, the more powerful they get. So there's just so many different dynamics created by this one mechanic, uh, which I, I think is really important. So, yeah, I think the big things was uh, – Really refining ally abilities was an important change to the game. Adding scrap abilities that was an important change. Like originally explorers, you couldn't scrap them. They were just, uh, I believe actually originally they were, they gave you both trade and combat, but they ended up cluttering up your decks. So if you bought too many of them, and I think moving the combat to a scrap ability was a really huge improvement for explorers, being able to get them out of your deck. Um, so I, I think uh, being able to more give more definition to the factions and the, mechanically. So, you know, I, I had differences between each faction, but really working to give them identity. So, okay, these mechanics are only used by the machine cult, or these mechanics are only used by the Trade Federation, or to really make them feel different from each other. I think that was a big advancement in the game. Um, you know, so there's just little things here or there, but a lot of it was just making sure the cards themselves weren't too complicated. 
Yeah, gotcha. All right, let's dive a little bit deeper into some of the challenges you ran into. What, what were some of the bigger challenges as far as just kind of creating debt uh, building games in general? Well, um, basically, obviously, I want to make them more interactive. I didn't want to just do what had already been done before. Um, but I think one of the things that we haven't talked about yet that made Star Wars special that I have to give Rob credit for was wasn't just the game mechanics in the game, but was how we presented the product. So up till Star Realms, deck building games were served like a board game. Basically, they were a big box game. You know, they often had came with a board and they sold for like 40 or 50 bucks, right? And that could be like any other board game. And, you know, even if we had made a deck building game that was only just as good as existing deck building games. Uh, obviously, we feel Stardom's is a lot better than the deck building games that came before. But even if we hadn't accomplished that, the fact that we are now offering it in a $15 box was pretty revolutionary. Like, we were giving you at least as much gameplay as these $40 and $50 games for a fraction of the price. The fact that it was also a better game was huge so now like of course people wanted to buy star realms because they, they were getting this amazing gameplay experience that they hadn't experienced before and for such a low price so i think being you know saying hey we don't really need a board was a big deal and was a big evolution and you know sure we we sell play mats if you decide you really like star realms and it'd be cooler to have a mat or whatever but basically you don't need a board like that was just something to like fill up you know, the box and these big box games and allow them to charge a little bit more and to give a little heft to the box that you're spending 40 or 50 bucks on. Um, and also a lot of people play deck building games as a two player game. All right. And these board games, one of the things is like, oh, it's for four players or six players or whatever. And when we were selling in a $15 box for two players, we're like, well, if you weren't planning on playing with four players, then why spend all that money on that? Why not just buy this two player? And if you really want to play with four players, Buy another $15 box. It's still only 30 bucks, you know? Um, so I think part of it wasn't just the game mechanics and the game design, but the product design. And I think a lot of people lose sight of the importance of how you present your product when they're doing their game design because a huge part of the appeal isn't just the game mechanics. Yeah, for sure. I'd say, you know, I've, I've had several guests come on the show in the past. They were publishers or whatnot, and the theme continues to be the same. People don't buy games. People buy products. You know, and that's that's right. really what it is. And and a great game that doesn't come across as a great product is going to sit on the shelf. It's going to sit in the warehouse. It's not going to get sold. And so it's just something to always keep in mind, no matter what kind of game you're working on. Now, tell me the the business ideas behind. All right, we're going to offer this game for fifteen bucks, but you, you can't do that forever and sustain a business, right? And so, like, what were the the ideas going in? It's like, okay, we're going to offer this for fifteen, and then come with these expansions. Like, did you already have a lot of stuff planned, you know, through a timeline kind of down the road? Well, it was definitely a gamble because. Uh, you know, if we were going to sell, if we could choose to sell, let's say a thousand copies of a $50 game or a thousand copies of a $15 game, obviously you'd make a lot more money selling it for $50. But if somehow you could sell, you know, 20,000 copies of a $15 game or a thousand copies of a $50. So basically our gamble was that we could greatly expand our customer base by going this way. So like the problem with a lot of uh, games is the amount of money you spend on development and art and graphic design and stuff. But 
So, but there's, that's a fixed cost. You know, at some point you spend X thousands of dollars on art and X, you know, amount of money on graphic design and you put X amount of hours in design development and okay, that's the amount of money you spent on it. And the, you need to pay for that, right? Like that, that needs to be covered. And so we could pay for that faster with a small number of people with a really expensive game. But as long as we sell enough copies, it's, it's a fine thing to do the, the smaller price. And our, our feeling was that like we'd sell enough more copies by lowering the price that it ended up being better. And, and frankly, that does increase our outreach because if we've got, let's say, 100,000 fans instead of 20,000 fans, if we, yeah, make a digital app or make an expansion or something, that's going to speak to 100,000 people instead of speaking to 20,000 people. So, yeah, like it is, you know, I guess, you know, a gateway drug. <laughs> if you make a really great $15 game and people like it so much, they want you to make other stuff that's associated with it. Sure. Um, and obviously we were swinging for the fences. Like I think anytime we make a game, we were like, well, we could just make a little game that's kind of cool to play or whatever, or we could try and make a game that's amazing that people want to play all the time over and over and could be like a big hit, you know, and uh, by, you know, a small company standard, Star Wars was a huge hit, right? Um, and it allowed us, yeah, we made an app and I think it's a fantastic, you know, digital representation of Star Wars. And yeah, we've made lots of expansions. We've made sleeves and play mats. And, you know, it's it basically, if you want to, you know, really dive into Star Wars, it's there for the taking. Yet at the same time, you could just spend fifteen dollars and you can play again and again and again and again. Or heck, you could spend nothing and download our app and play a ton of Star Realms without ever spending a dime. You know, it's just one of those things where you can decide exactly what experience you want to get from the game. And you know, we, we've got that level of uh, investment for you. You can, but just the fact that you can get so much gameplay for so little money as an option is something that people really appreciate. And they often appreciate it so much that over time they spend more money on expansions or whatever, and everybody's happy and everybody wins. Yeah, for sure. I would definitely say the uh, gamble paid off for you guys in some really awesome ways. All right, let's continue down this whole challenges road. Tell me about the, the struggles in creating uh, cards that combo with each other. Like, I'm sure this is just a lot of playtesting development, but like, give me kind of your process for you know creating new cards and making sure they don't just break the game. You know, new combos don't just kind of overwhelm what's already been established. Right. Well, so anytime we make a new ship or base for Star Realms, uh, there's several phases that goes through. Uh, one of it is we've just played so much Star Realms and designed so many Star Realms cards at this point that we can usually tell a glance like, yeah, this is about right. You know, it's uh, you know, it's very rare that we're testing card like, wow, this is way too powerful or way too weak because it never even got to the playtest stage because we could just eyeball it and be like, wow, this card's way off. All right. But even then, you know, cards will need changes. They just don't usually need dramatic changes. Um, and so then one of the things we do is we play them a lot. And after the game, we sit down and we pull out the new cards and say, okay, how do these feel when we're playing it? Another thing we do is we take, let's say we invented a new five cost base 
for the machine cult. We then take every single five cost base for a machine cult that's ever been printed and we compare it to them. Which of these would we rather have? Which of these seems more powerful? While we're at it, let's compare it to the four and six cost machine cult bases. Let's compare it to the five cost trade federation bases. Let's compare it to the five cost machine cult ships. You know, there's so many different comparison points and we ask the same questions. Which of these would we rather have? Which of these are more powerful? And one of the best parts about deck building games as opposed to trading card games is there's a lot of margin for error. So we can screw up. We can make a card that, yep, this card's just not balanced. This six-cost card is just better than every other six-cost card we've ever made. It's actually not that big a deal. Like, basically, both players get a shot at it when it's in the trade row. And it's exciting. Like, oh, my gosh, that really powerful card showed up. Like, I hope I can get to six trades so I can acquire that. And then, like, okay, I got I hope I draw that really powerful card in time for it to matter to the outcome of the game. Now, obviously, if we were making horrible, you know, development mistakes left and right all the time, the game wouldn't be – wouldn't play well and we wouldn't you wouldn't like it. But if you make minor, you know, power level errors here and there – it can actually make the game more exciting to play. Like, so it's, it's much more forgiving developing a deck building game than it is developing a trading card game. Like, if you make a screw up like that in a trading card game, you've got to like ban the card or, you know, redefine how the card is worded and, and change it. And like, it's a, it's a real, you know, it's really annoying. But like with a deck building game, it's almost a feature. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Isaac Vega from Plathead Games was on the show a while back and he, he talked about the illusion of balance. And now there's no such thing as real balance. It's all about perception. And what you're in this case, it's kind of the opposite side of that is like, no, no, the perception is like, this is wildly imbalanced, but that's okay. Because again, like both players get a shot at it. It doesn't break the game and it makes things more tense, more exciting. And it could be a, a feature instead of a bug. And I think that's something just to kind of keep for people to keep in mind, especially designing these things. Cause I feel like you could just design forever and, and, and never feel like it was balanced. And so you just kind of never, you know, get to that published place and that's that's a terrible thing it's like when a game is is good is or even great but the designer just keeps on working it out well maybe you know maybe I'll try to fix this i'll try to tweak that and this isn't balanced it's like eventually you just have to ship it out the door i basically i i feel that game design uh or game play is more of an emotional experience than some game designers really process and basically a big question is how did you feel when you're playing the game and how do you feel when you're done playing the game Right. And so I think when you're designing a game, it's important to have little moments in the game. So, uh, for example, when we designed Colony Wars, we added a new mechanic where there are certain ships and bases that if you played a shipper base of that faction, um, you could put that card in directly into your hand and play it right away. And so, like, if you did that with an A cost card like Imperial Dreadnought, like, it felt like such an in-game victory. Like the game's not over yet, but in the middle of the game, you had this moment where you accomplished this really exciting thing. And so you did a lot of games, the moment comes only at the end of the game when you found out who won or not. But we want to, in our game design, we want to create moments throughout the game where moments of excitement, moments of accomplishment, moments of victory, so that you have that moment, even if you end up losing the game, there were moments of excitement as you're playing that got your, you know, got your excited, got you excited and, and really enhanced your enjoyment. 
All right, so let's talk about changing the theme for these games. I've talked to lots of designers who, you know, they've got a game and they're excited about it, but they feel like, yeah, I think it just needs to change from space to this other thing or from something to space or whatever. So tell me about the challenges in going from a Star Realms and taking the same system, but re, you know, kind of pivoting the theme over to Hero Realms. So um, our second major release was a game called Epic Card Game, which when we did the Kickstarter, a lot of people assumed or expected it was going to be a fantasy version of Star Realms because they love Star Realms, and that was the one game they knew we made, and here we were making a fantasy card game. Um, Some of those people were disappointed because it was not a a re-theme of Star Realms. It was a whole new game. But the number of people being disappointed just says, well, you know, we (laughs) should probably get around to making a fantasy version of Star Realms. And uh, initially what I tried to do was make a game significantly different than Star Realms. So uh, I was trying to incorporate uh, a magic system within the game in addition to using the Star Realms engine and different things. And long story shorter, we decided it would be better to have it be much more closely to the Star Realms engine. At the same time, we didn't want it to be identical, ignoring the flavor. We didn't want it to just be a reskin. Uh, so we changed the timing. So uh, we felt there were people out there who would appreciate a faster tempo than Star Realms, who would appreciate getting to the crazy turns that you have in Star Realms faster, and would also appreciate it if... So in Star Realms, uh, arguably the most important mechanic is scrapping. So you're removing your starting cards, your scouts and your vipers to, uh, over time, make your deck more powerful. Um, and we felt that if we made the tempo of Hero Realms faster, the equivalent of scrapping, which is sacrifice in Hero Realms, wouldn't be as all important. Like basically, it was just going to be another good mechanic as opposed to the most important mechanic. And so we felt that we'd take some pressure off of having sacrifice in your deck and, and give you alternate strategies. And in general, just maybe increasing the tempo would make it more fun for some people. Um, and it'd be a, a way that Hero Realms was different than Star Realms. Uh, in addition, by going with a different theme, it lent itself to some new mechanical options. Uh, so, for example, we've created characters and we've created a campaign system, which is you know gives it more of a Dungeons and Dragons kind of feel, which works better when you've got like people in your game as opposed to just machines, right? And also people sort of have certain expectations when they think of a wizard or a fighter or a thief or something. And we can mechanically create things that will go with that feel and with those expectations. And that's going to be different than when you're making spaceships and bases. And so we were able to create character classes, which had different starting decks than each other and having uh, it so that um, my starting deck isn't the same as yours creates a completely new and different experience. So we still had the Star Realms engine. It was still PvP. You were still attacking your opponent. You were still acquiring the equivalent of ships and bases. In this case, they were champions and actions, all right? But now we were creating a whole different experience because if my starting deck's different than your starting deck, it creates matchups, okay? So maybe I want to play differently if I'm playing a fighter versus a wizard than if I'm playing a fighter versus a ranger. 
right? And so that creates all sorts of interesting possibilities, all right? Um, and now we will also create a campaign system, all right? We have uh, some great guys, uh, Danny Mandel and Ben Schakowsky, who've designed a campaign system, which is a lot like going and playing cooperatively for your group, going into a dungeon in like a role-playing game, except you're also playing a deck-building game and you're creating your characters and leveling your characters up through this deck-building game. So we felt that, yeah, we want to be true to the Star Realms engine and keep the good stuff of the Star Realms engine while offering something new and different and more that you know was different from Star Realms because we want the people who enjoyed Star Realms to be able to get that same enjoyment in a fantasy way, but we also want to give people a, a reason to play it besides the fact that it's just a different flavor. Uh, and and it conveniently, we think that having a different flavor can lend itself to different mechanics. Yeah, for sure. I was so impressed when I first uh, saw, I guess I saw a review or something for Hero Realms and how you guys were able to infuse story and then have each, you know, all these characters. And like, I had played Star, Star Realms in the past and I enjoyed it. It was good. But I remember the first time I played Hero Realms, I was like, oh, okay, now this this is my kind of game right here. Actually, Hero Realms is the only, I think, the only deck-building game I own at this point. I was so just uh, enthralled with how you guys were able to in- infuse story with the deck-building uh, system that you had created. And so, yeah, it's a, it's a feat of design. And so let's let's keep talking about, you know, how you, you know, changing things and doing that, that kind of thing. Whenever you guys come up with an idea for a new set or a new expansion or something like that, like walk me through that process. What does that look like? Do you just kind of have a, a, an idea for a mechanism? You know, like, okay, how can we weave this into an expansion? Or like, what, is, what does it look like? Uh, so Rob and I are the principal designers of the vast majority of our products, uh, especially Star Realms, Hero Realms, and Epic. And we actually have different design styles. Uh, so I guess that um, I, I do a lot of the design work, and my design style is more storytelling. So, for example, uh, Rob designed the base set of Epic, and it's got a very broad story. Like each uh, player is considered to be a god, and they're creating worlds to battle on where there's no limit to their imagination, you know, whatever they can have dragons or dinosaurs or barbarians or you, you name it that they can do it. And they, so it really is just a very broad story with as many options, you know, as you want. Whereas when I make an expansion for Epic, I want to tell a more specific story. I want to talk about, this wizard leading his forces against this castle with, you know, this dragon in the background kind of thing. So like it actually like, so I guess I'm more of a storyteller when I do design. And so then I think about, okay, well, if I'm telling this story, what kind of mechanics might be cool with this story that I'm telling, right? Where Rob likes to think of cool mechanics and then, okay, what kind of story might go well with these cool mechanics I've designed, <laughs> which I think they're both valid uh, design methods. And I know successful game designers who do both besides us, but, uh, but yeah, my, my style is very, very story first. So like I, I try and think of, well, what would be the theme of the set and the name of the set and like, what, you know, are the people in this story doing and how can I represent that through mechanics? Yeah. Gotcha. Now, how do you avoid power creep? when you're developing these new cards? Well, um, you know, some of it we talked about earlier. So, for example, if I make a new ship, I compare it to existing ships of that cost. And again, like in a deck building game, if there's a little bit of power creep, it's not the end of the world. Uh, we, we designed some 
uh, promo cards with the first Kickstarter that were like, oh, you know, these are, you know, for Kickstarter and they're just promo cards. So we don't need to put as much development time into them as we did in the base game. And some of them were definitely too powerful. Like there's a card called the Ark that releases a promo card, which is, I think, unquestionably the most powerful seven cost ship in the game. And uh, if I had to do it over again, I would make it weaker. (laughs) Um, I, I think it's unbalanced, but you know, people liked it and they want us to add it to the app. So we did. So I play with it all the time in the app. And sure, it's too powerful, but like it doesn't ruin my experience. I, I think it's kind of fun to try and get it and kind of fun to see if I can win if my opponent gets it. And, and you know, it's sort of like we talked about. You can get away with a certain amount of unbalance in a deck building game. And the nice thing with the app is you've got you choose before you play what sets you want to play with. And if you think the arc is too good a card, well, just don't choose the year one promo cards and you're good to go. Um, I, I like to play with all the cards and, and that's fine. But that, that one of the nice things about having so many expansions, it does allow people to sort of customize their experience and play just play with the sets they like. Yeah, for sure. I guess this is another way that deck building games are just a little bit superior or you know, maybe not superior. Maybe it's not the best word, but anyway, very different from uh, Magic the Gathering, yeah. something like that, where, you know, one card comes out. It's something cool about the yeah. games. Right. All right, let's talk about playtesting. These are the kind of games that just require tons and tons and tons. Uh, obviously, every game requires tons of playtesting, but these are even more so because there's so many different combos and things that can happen in the game. So tell me about White Wizard's playtesting process. Um, so uh, initially, we were a very small company. When, when we first started, well, when first I was just Robin, well, my first time was just me. <laughs> like I, I, we weren't really a company back then when I was designing Star Wars. But when we first became a company, it was just Rob and I. And then we teamed with a programmer named Tan Thor Jen in Singapore who was going to be in charge of creating an app. But he wasn't involved in the actual testing and development of the physical game. And then we had a graphic designer, Vito Giswaldi. But that was it. We were a four-person company, and Vito lived in Los Angeles and wasn't involved in design development. Tan lived in Singapore and wasn't designed in, involved in design development. So at that point, Rob and I did all of it. Like basically, we did all the design work, we did all of the development work, and sure, occasionally I might play a game with a friend of mine. I'd break it on like the prototype and say, hey, I've got this cool game. Will you play it with me and tell me what you think? And, you know, those people got their names in the first game as playtesters. But pretty much 100% of development. Like, so for example, I might come to Rob and say, hey, I played some games with my friend and like, I'm not sure about these cards. And then Rob and I would play them some more and we'd talk about, okay, how can we change it? How can we improve it? How can we balance it better? So for the longest time, it was just, two guys right? and that was okay because we that's often how we work when we we're preparing for magic tournaments when we were designing magic decks and so we were used to working together in that fashion and you know we were very self-confident like we we believed we knew what we were doing um over time like you know we've increase the size of the company and we do have more people that we can test with and more people we can get the opinions of and more people who can make suggestions. But when it comes down to what change should we make to this card, those decisions are at this point exclusively made by Rob and I. Like, so there may be people that we play with who say, Hmm, this card seems like it's a little too good or this, I'm not really happy with this card, but then Rob and I will then decide what to do about it. 
right? Uh, and if anything, like maybe we'll be like, yeah, no, we like this card just fine. <laughs> We're going to leave it that way. Um, but it definitely um, means that Rob and I have to wear a lot of hats because Rob is the CEO of the company and he's constantly doing, you know, business negotiations, business decisions, and, you know, figuring out any number of things like talking to shippers, talking to distributors. Um, and in my case, I'm also the art director. And now that we have so many different products, uh, that's a lot of art that, that, you know, so I'm constantly emailing with artists and giving them feedback and requesting and sending art briefs out and stuff. And yet somehow we also need to do all this design development. So uh, we're pretty busy. And uh, I think we're so far so good. I think we're pulling it off so far. Yeah, it's working out pretty well. All right. So if somebody thinking about making their own deck building game, maybe they're working on one right now, what would you tell them as far as how to stand out? Because, I mean, there's so many different ones now and, and doing it in different ways, different angles. How do you how do you stand out in 2018, 2019 with one of these style games? Well, I think basically uh, part of it is you need to check every box. So, like, you could have a really cool game but if your art's not great, if your graphic design's not great, if your marketing is not great, like it's probably going to get lost. Like basically, uh, you need to have a good marketing plan. You need to have great visuals. You need to have a good story. You need to have good mechanics. And ideally, your game needs to do something different that other games don't do. But, at, you know, even if it's just choosing a genre that hasn't done before or telling a cooler story, uh, if your mechanics are similar to an existing game, like, but, you know, I think the best thing you could do would be to find a next level mechanic. Like, okay, we're, we still have an elegant, uh, you know, let's say deck building game that plays well, but we've come up with a mechanic that is even cooler that no one's done yet. Like, uh, obviously, you know, if I knew it, I would just do it. So I'm, I'm not going to, like, make suggestions on what exact mechanics you should do. Um, but basically, that, that would be ideal. But if you can't come up with a way to make your game stand out mechanically, then you have to make it stand out with your story, with your visuals, with your marketing. But you, you just can't afford to, like, you have to be crushing it in every area. And, and I, I think that... That's something that uh, too many games don't do. They'll be like, oh, this is a really cool game, but their art's really weak, or maybe their graphic design's really weak. And um, I've really learned to appreciate all the elements, like, because I've worked on games where, wow, this game is so amazing. How come it's not more popular? And looking back, I'm like, wow, the art and graphic design for that game sucked. No wonder it wasn't more popular, or whatever, you know? Yeah, definitely. And that's, that's the thing. So there's so many great games that good games come out and they're just forgettable. And so if you're not checking all the boxes, like you're saying, you're going to be forgotten in just this giant slew of, of a noisy market that is, is what it is, uh, even on Kickstarter, right? So Kickstarter right. has become just such a, you know, a noisy place as well. It's hard to stand out there. Uh, and along, you know, along with retail space, along with, you know, Gen Con, with all these different places, they're just becoming more and more of a boom. And so, yeah, if you're not hitting all those boxes, good luck to you. Right. And I, I think that uh, there's different ways to innovate in different spaces. Like uh, we had a much bigger advantage in the physical space than we in the digital space, because in the physical space, we offered this $15 game that was competing with $50 games. 
there was no way to do that in the digital space because there's already like thousands of cool games that you could play for free and we couldn't charge less than free. <laughs> so, <laughs> so basically, you know, d- different spaces offer different areas for innovation. So, you know, the price, well, price point wasn't really a good way for us to innovate in the digital space. We had to do other things. And so I think that's just another thing to think about is like, you know, what are the ways to innovate? And, and the example being in Star Realms that in addition to innovating with mechanics, we're able to innovate with the approach to the product. Yeah, for sure. And that goes back to what we were saying earlier. This is a product. It's not just a game. And you have to have that holistic approach to things. Otherwise, it's just never going to work. Right. Like, I mean, in, in Magic's case, I think they were the one of the most impressive ever examples of product innovation. The fact that you didn't buy the game. You bought packs of cards, which over time you could assemble into a game. Yeah. And the fact that you had all this incentive to keep buying more packs in hopes of getting the cards you needed to assemble your game, like that, that while insidious was a brilliant product design. Yeah. And millions upon millions upon millions of dollars later, here we are. And that, you know, they're still doing uh, pretty well. I think they're going stronger. Yeah, yeah definitely. Well, Darwin, man, I really appreciate your time. Appreciate you coming on the show. Do you have any kind of closing thoughts, closing advice for somebody working on one of these games? We've already talked about some things. Anything else, kind of a tips or trick kind of thing? Well, something to keep in mind is uh, you just can't do it alone. Like, you know, yes, I'm the designer of Star Realms, but as we talked about, like, it doesn't really matter if your game's awesome if you don't have all the other stuff. Like, so for example, I was very fortunate to be best friends with someone, Rob, who uh, already understood game companies. So he had connections in distribution. He knew distributors and could reach out to distributors. He knew printers and could reach out to printers. Like basically, uh, you know, who you know matters, both in that business sense and in, again, you can't do it alone. You need, so you got to figure out what you're good at figure out what you're not good at, and then find people who are good at those things to work with. Like, so I don't know how to program, but I knew someone who was a good programmer. Uh, you know, I, I don't know how to do graphic design, but I knew a graphic designer. And uh, so I, I think you just need a good team, right? Like you can't do it by yourself, but if you know the right people and can assemble the right people, like, you know, um, I'm sure Captain America is awesome, but he's a lot more awesome when he's with the Avengers. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's a great point, and hopefully people uh, will take that to heart because that's, that's any game. It doesn't matter if you're building a, uh, making a debt-building game or you're making the next version of Monopoly. Like, you need people around you uh, to kind of fill your gaps, so to speak. Right, exactly. Yeah. Well, Darwin, again, I really appreciate your time. Appreciate all the insight and advice, and uh, good luck with all of the really cool stuff White Wizard is working on and everything else you got going on right now. Great. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thanks for listening. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com and find all sorts of game design resources, bonus material, and chances to win free games at boardgamedesignlab.com. And until next time, keep designing, keep playtesting, and keep creating great games. Did I mention keep playtesting?